0: The Nineteenth Hat by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon A dramatic moment was about to arrive in the joint career of Stephen Cheserdine and Vera, his wife. The motor car stood by the side of the pavement of the Strand, Torquay, that resort of Southern wealth and fashion. The chauffeur, Felix, had gone into the automobile shop to procure petrol. Mr. Chesardine, looking longer than ever in his long coat, was pacing the busy footpath. Mrs. Chesardine, her beauty obscured behind a flowing brown veil, was lolling in the tonneau, very pleased to be in the tonneau, very pleased to be observed by all Torquay in the tonneau, very satisfied with her husband and with the Napier car, and especially with Felix, now buying petrol. Suddenly, Mrs. Chesardine perceived that next door but one to the automobile shop was a milliner's. She sat up and gazed, according to a card in the window, an after-season sale was in progress that June day at the milliner's. There were two rows of hats in the window, each hat plainly ticketed. Mrs. Chesardine descended from the car, crossed the pavement, and gave to the window the whole of her attention. She sniffed at most of the hats, but one of them of green straw Was a large, curving green wing on either side of the crown, and a few odd bits of fluffiness here and there pleased her. It was Parisian. She had been to Paris once. An after season sale at a little shop in Torquay would not, perhaps, seem the most likely place in the world to obtain a chic hat. It is, moreover, a notorious fact that really chic hats cannot be got for less than three pounds. And this hat was marked ten shillings. Nevertheless, hats are most mysterious things their quality of being chic is more often the fruit of chance than of design particularly in england you never know when nor where you might light on a good hat vera considered that she had lighted on one they're probably duck's feathers dyed she said to herself but it's a darling of a hat and will suit me to a tee as for a price when once you have taken the ticket off a hat the secret of its price is gone forever Many a hat less smart than this hat has been marked in Bond Street at ten guineas instead of ten shillings. Hats are like oil paintings. They are worth what people will give for them. So Vera approached her husband, and with an enchanting, innocent smile, lend me half a sovereign, will you, Doggy?" She called him doggie in those days, because he was sort of a dogman, sort of a St. Bernard, shaggy and big, with faithful eyes, and he enjoyed being called Doggy. But, on this occasion, he was not to be bewitched by the enchanting innocence of the smile, nor by the endearing epithet. He refused to relax his features. "'You're going to buy another hat, aren't you?' he asked sternly, challengingly. The smile disappeared from her face, and she pulled her slim young self together. "'Yes,' she replied harshly. The battle was definitely engaged. You may inquire why a man financially capable of hiring a twenty-to-twenty-four-horsepower Napier car with a French chauffeur named Felix, for a week or more, should grudge his wife ten shillings for a hat. Well, you are to comprehend that it was not a question of ten shillings, it was a question of principle. Vera already had eighteen hats, and it had been clearly understood between them that no more money should be spent on a tire for quite a long time. Vera was entirely in the wrong. She knew it, and he knew it. But she wanted just that hat. And they were on their honeymoon, you know which enormously intensified the poignancy of the drama. They had been married only six days. In three days more, they were to return to the five towns, where Stephen was solidly established as an earthenware manufacturer. You who have been through them are aware what ticklish things honeymoons are and how much depends on the tactfulness of the more tactful of the two parties. Stephen, thirteen years older than Vera, was the more tactful of the two parties. He had married a beautiful and elegant woman with vast capacities for love in her heart. But he had married a capricious woman, and he knew it. So far, he had yielded to her caprices, as well became him. But in the depths of his masculine mind, he had his own private notion as to the identity of the person who should ultimately be master in their house, and he had decided only the previous night that when the next moment for being firm arrived, firm he would be. And now the moment was upon him. It was their eyes that fought, silently, bitterly. There is a great deal of bitterness in true love. Stephen perceived the affair broadly, in all its aspects. He was older and much more experienced than Vera, and therefore he was responsible for the domestic peace, and for her happiness, and for his own, and for appearances, and for various other things. He perceived the moral degradation that would be involved in an open quarrel during the honeymoon. He perceived the difficulties of a battle in the street, in so select and prim a street as the Strand, Torquay, where the very backbone of England's respectability goes shopping. He perceived Vera's vast ignorance of life. He perceived her charm and her naughtiness and all her defects. And he perceived, further, that this being the first conflict of their married existence, it was of the highest importance that he should emerge from it the victor. To allow Vera to triumph would gravely menace their future tranquillity, and multiply the difficulties that her adorable capriciousness would surely cause. He could not afford to let her win. It was his duty, not merely to himself, but to her, to conquer. But on the other hand, he had never fully tested her powers of sheer obstinacy, her willingness to sacrifice everything for the satisfaction of a whim, and he feared these powers. He had a dim suspicion that Vera was one of that innumerable class of charming persons who are perfectly delicious and perfectly sweet, as long as they have precisely their own way, and no longer. Vera perceived only two things. She perceived the hat, although her back was turned toward it, and she perceived the half-sovereign, though it was hidden in Stephen's pocket. But, my dear, Stephen protested, you know, will you lend me half a sovereign? Vera repeated in a glacial tone. The madness of a desired hat had seized her. She was a change to Vera. She was not a loving woman, nor a duteous young wife, nor a reasoning creature. She was an embodied instinct for hats. It was most distinctly agreed, Stephen murmured, restraining his anger. Just then, Felix came out of the shop, followed by a procession of three men bearing cans of petrol. If Stephen was Napoleon and Vera Wellington, Felix was the Blücher of this deplorable altercation. Impossible to have a row, yes, a row, with your wife, in the presence of your chauffeur, with his French ideas of chivalry. Will you lend me half a sovereign? Vera reiterated, in the same glacial tone, not caring tuppence for the presence of Felix. And Stephen, by means of an interminable silver chain, drew forth his sovereign case from the profundity of his hip pocket. It was like drawing a bucket out of a well, and he gave Vera half a sovereign, and that was like knotting the rope for his own execution. And while Felix and his three men poured gallons and gallons of petrol into a hole under the cushions of the tonneau, Stephen swallowed his wrath on the pavement, and Vera remained hidden in the shop. And the men were paid and went off, and Felix took his seat ready to start. And Vera then came out of the hat-place, and the new green hat was on her head, and the old one in a bag in her pretty hands. What do you think of my new hat, Felix? She smiled to the favored chauffeur. I hope it pleases you. Felix said that it did. In these days, chauffeurs are a great race and a privileged. They have usurped the position formerly held by military officers. Women fawn on them, take fancies to them, and spoil them. They can do no wrong in the eyes of the sex. Vera had taken a fancy to Felix. Perhaps it was because he had been in a cavalry regiment. Perhaps it was merely the curve of his mustache, who knows, and Felix treated her as only a Frenchman can treat a pretty woman, with a sort of daring humility, with worship, in short, with true Gallic appreciation. It ravished her to think that she was the light of poor Felix's existence, an unattainable star for him. Of course, Stephen didn't mind. That is to say, he didn't really mind. The car rushed off in the direction of Exeter, homeward. That day, by means of Felix's expert illegal driving, they got as far as Bath, and there were no breakdowns. The domestic atmosphere in the tonneau was slightly disturbed at the beginning of the run, but it soon improved. Indeed, after lunch, Stephen grew positively bright and gay. At tea, which they took just outside Bristol, he actually went so far as to praise the hat. He said that it was a very becoming hat, and also that it was well worth the money. In a word, he signified to Vera that their first battle had been fought, and that Vera had won, and that he meant to make the best of it and to accept the situation. Vera was naturally charmed, and when she was charmed, she was charming. She said to herself that she had always known that she could manage a man. The recipe for managing a man was firmness, coupled with charm. But there must be no half-measures, no hesitations. She had conquered. She saw her future life stretching out before her like a beautiful vista and Stephen was to be her slave, and she would have nothing to do but give rein to her caprices and charm Stephen when he happened to deserve it. But the next morning the hat had vanished out of the bedroom of the exclusive hotel at Bath. Vera could not believe that it had vanished, but it had. It was not in the hat box, nor on the couch, nor under the couch, nor perched on a knob of the bedstead, nor in any of the spots where it ought to have been. When she realized that, as a fact, it had vanished, she was cross. On an inquiring from Stephen what trick he had played with her hat, she succeeded in conveying to Stephen that she was cross. Stephen was still in bed, comatose. The tone of his replies startled her. Look here, child, he said, or rather snapped. He had never been snappish before. Since you took the confounded thing off last evening, I haven't seen it, and I haven't touched it, and I don't know where it is. But you must... I gave in to you about the hat, Stephen continued to snap, though I knew I was a fool to do so and I consider I behaved pretty pleasantly over it, too. But I don't want any more scenes. If you've lost it, that's not my fault. Such speeches took Vera very much aback, and she, too, in her turn, now saw the dangers of a quarrel, and in this second altercation, it was Stephen who won. He said he would not even mention the disappearance of the hat to the hotel manager. He was sure it must be in one of Vera's trunks. And in the end, Vera performed the day's trip in another hat. They reached the five towns much earlier than they had anticipated, before lunch on the ninth day, whereas the new servants in their new house at Bursley were only expecting them for dinner. So Stephen had the agreeable idea of stopping the car in front of the new Hotel Metropole at Hanbridge and lunching there. Precisely opposite this new and luxurious caravanserai, as they love to call it in the five towns, is the imposing garage and agency where Stephen had hired the Napier car. Felix said he would lunch hurriedly in order to transact certain business at the garage before taking them on to Bursley. After lunch, however, Vera caught him transacting business with a chambermaid in a corridor. Shocking, though the revelation is, it needs to be said that Felix was kissing the chambermaid. The blow to Mrs. Chesardine was severe. She had imagined that Felix spent all his time in gazing up to her as an unattainable star. She spoke to Stephen about it in the accents of disillusion. What? cried Stephen. Don't you know? They're engaged to be married. Her name is Mary Callier. She used to be parlor maid at Uncle John's at Old Castle, but hotels pay higher wages. Felix engaged to a parlor maid. Felix, who had always seemed to Vera a gentleman in disguise. Yes, it was indeed a blow. But Balm awaited Vera at her new home in Bursley. A parcel, obviously containing a cardboard box, had arrived for Stephen. He opened it, and the lost hat was inside it. Stephen read a note and explained that the hotel people at Bath had found it and forwarded it. He began to praise the hat anew. He made Vera put it on instantly and seemed delighted, so much so that Vera went out to the porch to say goodbye to Felix in a most forgiving frame of mind. She forgave Felix for being engaged to the chambermaid. And there was the chambermaid walking up the drive, quite calmly. Felix, also calmly, asked Vera to excuse him and told the chambermaid to get into the car and sit beside him. He then informed Vera that he had to go with the car immediately to Old Castle, and was taking Miss Kallir with him for the run, this being Miss Kallir's weekly afternoon off. Miss Kallir had come to Bursley in the electric tram. Vera shook with swift anger, not at Felix's information, but at the patent fact that Mary Kallir was wearing a hat that was the exact replica of the hat on Vera's own head, and Mary Kallir was seated like a duchess in the car while Vera stood on the gravel and two of Vera's new servants were there to see that Vera was wearing a hat precisely like the hat of a chambermaid. She went abruptly into the house and sought for Stephen as with a sword, but Stephen was not discoverable. She ran to her elegant new bedroom and shut herself in. She understood the plot. She had plenty of wit. Stephen had concerted it with Felix. In spite of Stephen's allegations of innocence, the hat had been sent somewhere, probably to Brunt's at Hanbridge, to be copied at express speed, and Stephen had presented the copy to Felix, in order that Felix might present it to Mary Collier, the chambermaid, and the meeting in the front garden had been deliberately arranged by that odious male, Stephen. Truly, she had not believed Stephen capable of such duplicity and cruelty. She removed the hat, gazed at it, and then tore it to pieces and scattered the pieces on the carpet. An hour later, Stephen crept into the bedroom and beheld the fragments and smiled. Stephen, she exclaimed, you're a horrid, cruel brute. I know I am, said Stephen. You ought to have found that out long since. I won't love you any more. It's all over, she sobbed, but he just kissed her. End of The Nineteenth Hat by Arnold Bennett. Recording by Colleen McMahon.